Welcome to the Sifted podcast, supported by our sponsors, Zendesk for Startups, and recorded at Dream Factory in Shoreditch. In this podcast, we have a little look at what's been going on in the world of startups and tech all across Europe. We have a look at what our journalists have been reporting on and what they're working on for the next week. And we discuss any other things that have been going on, Twitter storms, things like that in the world of startups and tech. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor, and our deputy editor and co-host Eleanor is away this week. So instead, we're joined by a very, very special guest, Steve O'Hear. Steve, can you introduce yourself to someone who doesn't hasn't heard of your fame already? <laughs> Sure, yeah. So I'm, I'm Steve. Um, I was previously a journalist at TechCrunch, most famously, where I spent 10 years or just more than 10 years covering startups in Europe and venture capital. Um, and last year I joined Zap, the on-demand convenience app that delivers drinks, snacks and all sorts of things that you need or want right now. And we're quite big, well, very big in London and Amsterdam. But yeah, happy to return back to my my journalist roots and join this show. And we are delighted to have you. So uh, we've got a very juicy episode for Steve this week. We're going to be digging into the family, the pretty iconic French startup incubator, whose co-founder has been accused of embezzlement this week. Pretty pretty crunchy story. We'll also be talking to our Spanish correspondent Tim Smith, who you've heard on this podcast before, uh, who was reporting on some not very happy employees at Glovo, the delivery company. And we'll be discussing some tweets that certain Swedish founders have been sending out about journalists' relationships with tech companies. But before we get into all those very crunchy and juicy stories... What's been going on with you, Steve? How's your week been? It's been it's been great, yeah. Very, very busy, very varied in startup to stayed up life. But uh, yeah, it's it's been fun. What's very, been the biggest yeah. change from journalist to startup employee? <laughs> um, I guess probably just joining a, a huge team, right? Like as a journalist, I was pretty autonomous. It's quite a quite a lonely affair. Probably very different to Sifted's super social newsroom, I dare yeah, say. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a jolly crew. <laughs> right, exactly, right? Um, and so I think it was, yeah, I think it's been working with some just amazing people and working very closely with different teams and different disciplines. So I think it's been that, just just a much more varied life. And then obviously the impact you have at a startup that then is a startup. And I think we were one of the fastest growing startups last year, which reported by Sifted, I should add. And... Yeah, and seeing a company scale and grow so quickly from the inside is actually, you know, as you would imagine, quite different from being a journalist reporting on it from the outside. So yeah. it's been fascinating. But Amy, tell me what's been happening at Sifted. I gather you're working on, on a big event. We are. We're doing our very first in-person, all-day event that is not in the UK. And we're going to Tallinn, the land of unicorns like Bolt, and pipe drive and lots of other exciting tech companies like starship technologies the fun little robots that come around delivering your groceries is is zap going to be using them anytime soon steve <laughs> no plans no plans at the moment um okay. interesting company though yeah um so it's going to be like our the event we ran in london last year very focused on kind of practical side of things lots of founders and startup operators 
going dealing with things like you know in a country where there aren't many sales people how do you get a really great awesome sales team to join your startup or the usual kind of people challenges investment raising challenges we'll be covering all that kind of stuff and it will be very non conferency feeling so if you are in that area maybe in finland or somewhere where you can just hop over for the day please check it out on our website and obviously i mean events are a crowded space so what's going to be the shifted edge yeah so i guess it's that focus on kind of really practical stuff we want it to be the kind of event where people are getting out their phones to take notes not to scroll through twitter because they're so bored by what's being said on stage and also hopefully make really really good contacts um, and just have a fun time. The um, the event in London, we had some really nice feedback from people that was like, you know, I, I came along just for a few panels and I thought I'd leave because I had loads of work to do. And I just actually was having so much fun that I stayed and sort of turned off my email for the day and learned loads of things. So I guess that's that's what we want from these events. That's, that's amazing feedback. Oh, yeah. uh, that feels pretty unusual for a tech event where often the biggest names, they can't wait to like, leave once they've done their bit. And it's a hard market to track. My one tip, if I may be as bold to give you my one tip for conferences, do not try and make a joke on stage at a tech conference. Okay. Have you had some major flops, I, Steve? 100%. I've like literally <laughs> written, I think, what's one of the best jokes in the world, and I've dropped it on stage, and it has bombed. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. If your ego okay, is, noted. Yeah, if your ego is as, like, as fragile as mine, do not do that. All right, no jokes from me at Talon. Promised. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So what, no, what else has been happening then in terms of editorial? We are just still hiring away. Got some nice new joiners coming very soon, but we're still looking for more reporters based on the continent. So if you are an awesome tech journalist, Steve, if you know anyone, if you want to hook us up, we're growing the team <laughs> at Sifted. So come along. So now should we get stuck into our first story, Steve, about the family? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, this is a big one, right? It was a pretty juicy one. So um, Alice Zagary, who's one of the co-founders of this French sort of VC firm meets accelerator meets events company, posted on LinkedIn on uh, Sunday, I think it was afternoon, a link to a Medium post in which she and another co-founder of the family, Nicholas Collan, who for full disclosure is a sifted columnist or has been a sifted columnist in the past, they basically accused their other co-founder, a man called Usama Amar, of embezzling three million euros. Now we need to be super clear that this is what they are alleging and this is a kind of legal dispute which is ongoing between these three people but it was pretty explosive for an organisation that was always it stood out because you know you'd go to their office in Paris and it's literally like palm trees, giant stuffed tigers, you know gold plated chairs. It was like very eccentric very different but also very kind of welcoming and you know it did feel like a family and suddenly you know this thing has ripped it apart from the inside yeah no absolutely it's been a big big story i mean maybe you can explain what was their business model because they weren't a classic venture capital firm were they no so they they did invest in startups or they they hold shares in about 120 startups and they often got them 
as a result of startups kind of coming to their events, being part of that community, you know, I guess like meeting, you know, they would hold these dinners and things where you'd have loads of founders and angel investors. And the idea was that you kind of joined the family and and all of the kind of benefits that came with that was, you know, worthy of you giving them some shares in your company. They also made money via events and things like that. Okay, but let's like dig into the details a little bit. What is the actual main accusation yeah so the new accusation that alice agri and nicholas collin have kind of put against usama amar is that he's refused to account for three million euros that they raised to invest in startups and they basically are alleging that he said he would take the money and kind of put it somewhere else for safekeeping and that money hasn't reappeared and then the family has also hired lawyers in several countries, in England, in Wales and the Cayman Islands, to take legal action against Amar. And the Grand Court of the Cayman Islands has issued an interim freezing injunction, which basically means that Amar can't move at least three million euros, so the amount that they've accused him of embezzling, out of the country. And that's all according to a document that Nicholas Collin sent to shareholders at the weekend. And obviously, Amar hasn't stayed quiet either. He actually wrote back on LinkedIn. This is a quote. This is a legal dispute between partners based on personal resentment. It's a shame to tear yourself apart like this, but it's classic. Entrepreneurs know this well. We have been trying since 2020 to find an amicable solution without reaching an agreement, despite many hours of discussion. I mean, I guess the part I'm trying to work out is how much maturer the French Paris ecosystem is. And whether this is, as much as it's a great piece of news and has, you know, some some classic story elements, you know, literally the family has fallen out, right? But does this really have any impact on the ecosystem? Or is, can the ecosystem, you know, perfectly withstand this kind of scandal? Yeah, I reckon the ecosystem we find. I think the family played a really, really key part in the early days, you know, it was a catalyst when... The French tech ecosystem was a lot smaller. It had lots of the kind of big names passed through its doors. You know, it's an investor in companies like Payfit and Algolia, which are now much bigger. But I think, yeah, now the the ecosystem is, you know, vying for always for second or third place in terms of investment raised. I think other communities like this now exist. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think you're right. And now for our second story, we're talking about a piece we ran on Monday about some unhappy employees at Glovo, the Spanish unicorn delivery company. And Steve will be abstaining from talking in this particular section, seeing as he does work for a competitor. So, Tim, how did you start writing this story? How did you first hear about what was going on at Glovo? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on to talk about it. So... How it happened was late last year, Sifted started getting messages and these messages were from people who had recently worked or were still working at Glovo's Italy office in Milan. These were people with varying levels of seniority, varying levels of experience at the company, and they all had slightly different experiences that they were coming to us with, but there were some common features of these accounts that we started hearing. And the main one was that they all said that the way... Glovo's Italy office was run and the way they'd been treated by management had had major impacts on their mental health. And 
this sort of goes beyond like the normal pressures of working at fast scaling businesses, which, you know, we hear about all the time. We know that working at a massively scaling company comes with stress, but they were describing a workplace where concerns weren't being listened to, that junior staff were bullied and victimised, there was a lack of personal development. There were quite a few people who said that they had been fired out of the blue, despite performing well and getting positive reviews from line managers, so out of the blue just being told that you'll be leaving the company tomorrow. These were people who seemed distressed telling me the story and telling me that they had left work in tears every day, You know, said that it had had massive impacts on their self-esteem, going on to get new jobs and had essentially really struggled so it sounded like a not very nice place to work and just to get into some of these stories about people being dismissed a bit more the reason they were being fired they were told was that they weren't aligned with one of Glovo's values they have six values one of them is uh, stay humble another one is good vibes so you know people were telling me that they were coming to senior management raising legitimate concerns about the business and you know things that really were critical to address and sort out in a business that does face quite a lot of challenges in a regulatory sense. And yet people who brought those challenges to senior management were apparently fired for not having enough good vibes because they were yeah, creating problems, it was said. I was told by another one that they were got rid of uh, because they'd breached the stay humble value because they'd asked for a promotion and conversations about career development. So they were told that, you know, that's not humble. You've got to go. So we put all this to Glovo and said that the management style had effects on staff's mental health, which they didn't sort of directly address some of the points about mental health but they did say we understand the disruption that losing a job can bring someone a reason is always given action is never taken lightly and then in response to these claims that it wasn't a supportive workplace to be in they came back to us and said that on platforms like Glassdoor they rank highly better than most of their competitors but they did say that they're committed to constantly improving and know they have more work to do. And then, Tim, when you first came to me with all these stories that you'd heard from people, my kind of question back to you was, you know, how can we be sure that this isn't, you know, just a a few people who've maybe been fired, maybe for fair reason, um, and they're unhappy and they're coming to us, you know, is there a story here? Does this tell us something about the, the bigger business? Yeah, and I think we'll get into, you know, like when is justified to do these stories a bit later. But like you say, like you could hear stories like that and think, okay, well, Glovo is a massive company. This could be a case of just like a couple of bad line managers, you know, and maybe that's not worth saying that there's a systemic problem at the company. Because I think that's when we think it's worth doing when there's sort of like issues, structural issues around processes at the company, which result in these quite nasty impacts as the staff claim in terms of mental health and well-being. So after talking with these people in Italy, I then spoke to people who'd had senior experience in the Barcelona HQ. And yeah, I kind of described what I'd been told. And I said, and yeah, I literally said this to them. I was like, I'm trying to work out if this is just disgruntled employees who are pissed off because they've been fired or is there something actually to this and this person who had you know a long experience of working at scale-ups essentially told me that they have invested heavily in quick commerce so this is something we've discussed on the podcast last week about get it but all of these very heavily funded companies that are doing speedy grocery delivery and Glover competing with them in a lot of key markets. And when you're competing with someone who is able to throw a lot more money at a sector at trying to scale that business line, 
what this person said was that they have to try and bring in all these other things to stand out. So it's like, we're not just delivering you food, but we can throw in your medicine deliveries via the pharmacy on that. We're also going to leverage our network of riders to do B2B deliveries. Um, so yeah, they were essentially saying that when you have that kind of scattergun strategy, what you do is you've got your capital, you hire people to start these projects. And then if the project's don't go well or they don't pick up you're just going to have to get rid of people because there's not a business case to keep those people in their jobs but what Glovo responded to that because we put this to them they said that Glovo is working in an industry where it needs to constantly adapt it's an agile company that gives room to new ideas to navigate a fast-paced industry whether an idea is a success or not we take responsibility for it and ensure we learn we encourage taking risks and what's the reaction been like from from readers or from other people who've seen the article since we've published it Yeah, so founder Oscar Pierre wasn't particularly happy. He came out swinging on LinkedIn in response to the post I did about the story. He said, hi, Tim, Uh, I'll give you some candid feedback. This is very poor journalism. It's either bad research or wrong intentions. 6,000 people have worked at Glovo since we founded it. You'll find a handful of detractors at any company of this scale, especially if they've been fired. I don't understand how this becomes an article in a business newspaper. And yet some people came to his defense. There were people who'd worked at uh, Glovo Spain HQ and said, yeah, we don't recognize this as the reality of working at Glovo. And I think it's important just to add here, like we did put in the piece that we're not saying that the culture issues are widespread across the company. This is something that we've heard about the management in Italy. We weren't saying that this was about all of Glovo. But we've also had a lot of messages, private messages from other people who've worked at Glovo who said that it was very similar to what they've experienced, that it had made them feel seen and had helped them to read these accounts. So we're confident based on that kind of feedback that we did get the story right. Okay, so to zoom out and to stop talking about Glovo in particular, what was your approach to things like this at TechCrunch? I'm sure you also had loads of instances where you'd get messages from a bunch of people at a startup that had grown quite fast and they were, as a result, not extremely happy. Like when, when is it enough to make a story or what was your approach there? You know, it's a really, really good question. So I think these kind of culture stories because in the end they're often about that right there about whether a culture at a particular company has turned slightly you know sour or hostile and how employees feel about the place they work right and so what happens when you're a journalist is you'll you'll get tipped off that someone is very unhappy about an incident and what you're always trying to figure out is is it systemic within the company as a whole or is it an isolated hr incident or is there some other motivation going on? So the classic sort of thinking is, is this just simply a disgruntled employee? Or is it is there an actual bigger story? But the problem is that it it's not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? It can be a bunch of disgruntled employees, but it can also be something systemic, right? And you're trying to work out if you have enough to go on to extrapolate that bigger story. So I think that's the challenge. In the end, it's it's difficult because you're very unlikely to have hundreds of employees come forward if it is systemic. So you're trying to work with, with the evidence that's in front of you. And in the end, it's, it's a judgment call. I have to say, as a journalist, I'm going to be a bit humble, which is very, very unusual for anyone who knows me. I definitely didn't get as many of these culture stories across the line as I would have wanted to. And because and, I found them incredibly hard 
to piece together the evidence. So yeah, it's definitely a challenge. However, that said, my approach was always to print the numbers. If there were six people that contacted you, there were six people. If six people was only a tiny percentage, let the readers make up their own mind, right? And so that's what you try to do. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I think what I always hoped was, even if you can objectively try to get the debate out there and try to raise questions around culture and, and stuff, I think it was helpful for the ecosystem as a whole. And I'll just say one last thing. It's not controversial to say that many, many startups don't scale their HR processes in line with the size of the company, right? So I think what you see in many of these stories isn't necessarily nefarious bad actors. It's just that HR is not always a priority amongst the founding vision of a company. And then there's a period where they play catch up. And also at startups that grow that crazily fast you have loads of people being managers or in positions of responsibility that have just not really done it before or not done it at that scale and that's hard that's just like a human problem right it's hard to train these people up and give them the experience they need while also you know expanding into 10 new countries a year or developing loads of new products but I don't think that excuses it uh, I think we should still be raising it no no and you and you I think you probably hit the nail on the head there you often have people who are... So when you think about a company is scaling, right, but also individuals are having to develop their own sort of learning and development super, super fast. And so you're right, you often have places where there's pressure to grow as a company and then there's often very, very young, like, don't get me wrong, like young, incredibly talented people, but they just don't have that, that line manager experience, right? And then when you couple that with a slightly underdeveloped HR team in terms of the size or is slightly behind where the company is at I think that's where you get problems so yeah just to chime back in that was something that you know I spoke to a VC at Cherry Ventures who invests in another speedy grocery delivery company and you know a lot of experience with scale-ups and we're saying exactly that that once you get to being a scale-up it does help to have people who have experience of establishing these kind of processes and that was all that a lot of the people I spoke to wanted. And just to go back to that point about when the numbers are justified and, you know, Oscar's point about this being a handful of detractors, we spoke to 10 former and current Glovo employees. Six of them had left or been fired. Two of them were still working in Italy and two of them had worked at senior level in Spain. But you have to assume that of those, you know, I spoke to someone yesterday who got in touch with me. And she said, I never would have contacted a journalist. Like she was so pleased to have read the story and said it validated her. But she was like, I was, you know, feeling very shameful after I'd left the company. I had low self-esteem and I just never would have approached someone. So I think it's worth remembering that it's very risky for people to come to journalists with a work-based complaint. If their anonymity gets blown, they could be in serious trouble, both legally and in terms of their career. So... I think that argument of it's just a handful of employees doesn't quite rub when you've been through the experience of talking to these people. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software for free for six months. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of founders and CX experts to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com forward slash sifted. Right, Steve, to talk a bit more about journalism, 
this week, Friedrich Helm, who's one of the founders of Voy, which is one of the European scooter companies, came out on Twitter basically having a little moan about journalists and saying, we need a glass door for journalists because often you speak to a journalist and they go and write something up, which is totally not what you wanted it to be. What do we think about this, Steve? <laughs> I mean, even a clock is right twice a day, right? This is sort of the usual reaction of founders, where they bemoan when they have some bad press. It's interesting because in his original post, he mentioned um, himself and also the founder of, of Tana. And I think he's, he said something like, we've done, I don't know, thousands of interviews and a handful have come out terrible. Right? And it, so that was even funny in itself because it didn't feel particularly like data-driven. If the majority of interviews have gone fine, then it, I don't see what the problem is. But no, it's interesting because you see this, don't you? You see, especially in Silicon Valley, like a lot of founders and venture capitalists bemoaning that the press is broken, that the criticism that these big, powerful companies come under is unfair. And it's just, it's a weird reaction. It's a bit like when people get mega rich, they start moaning about paying taxes, right? <laughs> like it's not, it's not particularly a new thing and it's, it's sort of, it's a little bit sad. But what was interesting was, I think, which it's worth digging into, is he actually did propose some solutions to the problem of broken journalism. And, and maybe they're worth slightly delving into. Although, to be fair to Frederick, he has sort of, like, backtracked on it all and realised he's probably not the expert in the room. Yeah, he has since deleted the tweet, although because I was tagged in it, I can still see some of them. And, and one one response to him was... Journalists are there to hold powerful people like yourselves accountable. That is much more in the public interest than you getting the angle you wanted in print. Unless they've written actual lies, but any paper worth its salt would co issue a correction for that. And he had a lot more responses like that. And I think he's basically realised that perhaps he was a little bit too trigger happy on the tweeting. You know, absolutely. But I think a lot of people do feel that journalism or the media is broken. Right, And so there's this feeling that, you know, people think that publications are incentivized to run kind of trick-baity headlines, that journalists are not interested in the facts. They, they come to a story with a pre-defined agenda, right? And I think the problem is there's some truth to that. Again, it's not completely like one way or the other. So, of course, there's many journalism and journalists, as you know, like work incredibly hard to try and establish the facts and trying to write it up in an objective way, but obviously there are, you know, I would say not all publications are equal, right? So there are definitely publications that are more interested in a sort of predefined agenda, and I think it would be dishonest to pretend that isn't the case. That said, it's a bit like democracy itself, right? It's, there isn't a perfect system of democracy, you just have to pick the least bad option. And I think when we consider sort of media landscape, you don't want an over-regulated media. I think part of what Frederick was suggesting was kind of a glass door for journalism or stories where every story alongside it there has to be the company's own version of the story is sort of like a kind of pre-built-in rebuttal right and that and that it wasn't clear who would regulate that which version of fact or truth who would be the arbiter of that and I think they need into all sorts of difficulties so I think the way to think about journalism is it is imperfect it is uneven but it's sort of the best version that we've come up with so far um, and I think I actually replied to Frederick, my point was that actually, and I always say this to venture capitalists that do the same kind of rant, I'm like, look, go away and use your amazing brains 
you know, and in, and market insights to fix the economics of journalism. And if you do that first, then you can come back and moan about the story that I've written. Yeah, and if the economics of journalism were a little bit better, a lot fewer journalists would be feel the need to do any sort of clickbait because they wouldn't be so hammered to try and get traffic to their websites in order to make money from, you know, advertising. That's, a, that's the point, so, exactly. And also what was weird about his comment was this idea of like a glass door where you could have these sort of automatic pushbacks from the companies that were covered in the story. So I think his idea was that you'd you'd have the, the, the publication's version of the story and alongside it would be an automatic kind of right to reply. And that sounds perfectly reasonable, right, when you, when you first think about it. But the interesting thing is you don't need a centralised glass door regulated website for that. I mean, we have the, the open web, right, and there's nothing stopping a, a CEO or founder or a company from, you know, logging into Medium or on their own website and just put in their version of the story. So it seemed a little bit odd to me to, to need some centralised system for doing that when we, we have the open web, there's links, there's social media. I mean, it's not like hard to get your version of a story out there, is it? It's not. It's, it's extremely easy these days. <laughs> so that is all we have time for this week. Thank you so much, Steve. You're definitely getting an invite back next time Eleanor or me is on holiday. That was super interesting discussion. And if you want to, listeners, if you want to hear more about what's going on in the world of European startups and tech, please find our coverage at www.sifted.eu please also do check out our event in Tallinn which is taking place on May the 3rd you can get a ticket on our website and it's free if you are a founder or a senior startup leader we also obviously have our newsletters you can follow us all on Twitter you can follow Steve at Twitter do you want to plug yourself Steve he's pretty good value (laughs) yeah so it's S-O here S-O-H-E-A-R at so yeah um and everyone should subscribe to sifted support support journalism thank you steve and uh, let us know what you think of the podcast you can email us hello at sifted.eu and please join us next week as well bye bye you want to say bye steve do i have, do I have to wait amy own the bye <laughs> <laughs>